Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by Super Ordinary, an audio drama about a young girl who discovers she has superpowers. There's only one problem. They're connected to her panic attacks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again today uh, in our science-based podcast, Insufficient Facts. Um, as usual, we'll be throwing some facts your way today, but not all of them. So if you're interested uh, in something we mentioned today, I highly encourage you go and investigate it a little further. We're going to we, we try and like do a little seasoning, a little soupçon of <laughs> flavor here and there just to pique your curiosity enough yeah. and inform you enough that you go out and kind of investigate it uh, some and do some reading on your own. So... Just as a reminder, if it's your first time joining us today, welcome. Um, you are with Christiane, Raquel, and Kyle. If you are rejoining us after listening to some of our previous episodes, thank you, thank you. We're happy to have you. Um, our topic for today is one that is, I think, really popular in kind of the general public to think about and kind of find terrifying <laughs> if you think about the future implications and, and maybe the direction we're headed. Mm -hmm. um, this topic today is going to be artificial intelligence so things that are we've created to be the matrix intelligent <laughs> that are not human beings or yeah. biological um, organisms so generally this is computers mm -hmm. or programming algorithms mm -hmm. so we're going to take you through our normal kind of setup today of a recent headline uh, about artificial intelligence um which is a pretty kind of lighthearted one. It's kind of, I, it's lighthearted in that nothing went wrong. If yeah. something had gone wrong, then it wouldn't be lighthearted, but it's kind of the new reality, the new day-to-day yeah. -day that, that we have to deal with with artificial intelligence in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to lead us through our science fiction science fact segment where I'm going to talk about uh, one of the classic science fiction movies that deals with artificial intelligence uh, and also one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Blade Runner. So I'm going to kind of talk us through Anything that Anything with Harrison Ford. <laughs> it's pretty great. I, I, I think, I mean, he's fantastic in the movie, but I think the the supporting actors also do a really fantastic job. I, and the, the ambiance is just a cool movie. Um, and I've actually read the book that it's based on, too, mm, just because I was nice. curious how, how similar they are. And they're not super similar, but... It's it's interesting nonetheless, um, and then we're gonna go through um, with our bizarre science segment where um, Raquel's kind of tell us how our brains in many ways are like computers mm -hmm. and and how similar they are and how in creating artificial intelligence we're almost trying to recreate the human brain yeah. but not biologically. Mm -hmm. um, and then we will go into our classic segment where uh, Kyle is going to take us through a discussion kind of of the implications of artificial intelligence in in the future, like probably in the pretty immediate future, too. Not it's, this would probably happen in our lifetimes kind of thing. Um, we will talk about capitalism, comrades. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Comrade Kyle oh is suddenly in the studio. <laughs> that was unexpected. Um, <laughs> capitalism. Okay, yes. The revolution is soon. Yeah, yeah. The, the Breaking news. Old Kyle is gone. <laughs> yeah. It's just the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonator Kyle <laughs> who's here with us today. But... 
kind of how um, artificial intelligence and, and is going to kind of affect society on a societal level um, and how uh, there's these really big implications of how that might really drastically change our, our day-to-day going forward. So, and then as usual, we'll end with our Lifting the Veil segment where we're going to tell you about what's coming up in our, in our day-to-day lives, what we're looking forward to. So let's start out with our recent headlines. So <laughs> I found this recently. Um, I think this was it was just amusing because we were kind of uh, putting together this episode and this headline popped up. It was from the LA Times. It's a local uh, headline where basically um, there was a man who owned a Tesla who was driving on the 101, which is a major highway that goes um, north-south through California. In a self-driving car. Yeah, and it mm. was one of the models that does have the full autopilot feature where you can kind of turn it on and the car will drive itself to your destination with minimal input from the driver needed, but legally required that you are paying attention um, to what's happening just in case there, you know, something happens that's unexpected or that. Anyway, so, you know, generally that's legally, even if the car is in autopilot mode, you need to be um, awake and aware and and paying attention at the wheel. Tesla implores that yeah. you stay awake at the yes, wheel. Yes, yeah. Um, this this driver um, the, decided not to listen to any of those recommendations and decided that uh, he was tired, so he was just going to sleep and take a nap on his drive to wherever. I'm assuming he I was... I feel sympathy for him. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're tired, you should probably just pull over and take a nap yeah. or have Uber somewhere. You know, there's a lot of other alternatives that don't require you to autopilot in your Tesla yeah. home. I mean, they don't give much information about him. You never know. It right. could be like narcoleptic or something. Anyway, right, right. Go, well, continuing. <laughs> so he, this man was um, the, the CHP, which is the California Highway Patrol. They um, they went to pull over this this man in his Tesla. And so they got behind him with the sirens on and everything. And the car did not show any signs of slowing down or stopping or pulling over. And so uh, they had to come up with this kind of alternative method of how to stop a self-driving car when the driver wouldn't wake up. So even with the sirens on, uh, the driver did not wake up. So they were like, okay, how can we pull this car over yeah. if we can't have any way of, of actually getting the driver to pull it over? So the, um, they came up with this new maneuver where they basically one officer cleared the traffic behind or around the car so that um, there was an empty stretch where it was just the Tesla that was left on the highway. And then another um, CHP officer got in front of the Tesla and the Tesla will respond to like slowdowns in traffic. So if the car in front of the Tesla is slowing down, then the autopilot feature will slow down the car to adjust to changes in the flow of traffic. So essentially, they did that. So they got in front of the car and they slowly, gradually slowed their speed down until they could bring the car, they could force the car to stop via the autopilot uh, feature. So, you know, the car probably thought it was in like bumper to bumper traffic or something, but it was really the CHP officer just being like, okay, (laughs) we need to slow this car down. And then they finally did, you know, finally stop the car and... uh, knock on the window to try and wake up the driver. And and then, of course, he did get arrested and and taken in because there's a lot of issues with being asleep at the wheel, even if your car is is in autopilot. He was arrested on suspicion of a DUI. So, right. And I think part of that was because he he was really hard to wake up. So that's also kind of uh, concerning. If with sirens and your car Mm -hmm. slowing down and stopping, you're still not awake. Um, Being in a self-driving car does not mean that you can get drunk and get in the car. Okay, guys? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not at that point. You know, maybe (laughs) maybe Mm. in the future, it will be really commonplace that like you don't even really drive anymore and you just get in 
some kind of vehicle that's going to take you where you need to be, um, drive around. But uh, legally, that's not the case. Most yeah. cars are still driven by people and, and autopilot. It's not perfect yet. Um, it's quite good, but not perfect. Like my, my concern when I read this is like, why is there no feature in the autopilot function that responds to emergency Seriously. vehicle sirens, right? Yeah. You would think that that would be important that it knows to pull over um, or move away, like get out of the way of, of uh, emergency vehicle if there's sirens or something. But mm-hmm. it didn't really seem like that was a functionality of the autopilot yeah. system. So anyway, that was a recent headline of how now we're yeah. having to deal with artificial intelligence in ways that, you know, we yeah. hadn't haven't had to deal with before. It's like, how do you stop a car that's driving itself? One thing from a sleep standpoint, Elon Musk, I'm from a sleep lab. We can work together on this. You can have the cars pull over when drivers start to fall asleep. There's, mm. There are ways around this. It's dangerous. We can work on it. Yeah, there should probably be. There can probably be a monitoring function yeah, in the definitely. car where they're like, okay, Absolutely. the driver is completely asleep, so mm-hmm. uh, we need to stop this vehicle yeah. <laughs> until they wake up. Um, but definitely, this this technology is improving, and, and it is now a you know much more commonplace because yeah. we have a lot more cars that do have these kind of autopilot um, or self driving features. So it's just going to be have to be you know it's something we are going to have to learn to mm-hmm. adjust to and deal with. Um, like the CHP officers had to yeah. adjust to the situation. I dream of a future where all cars are self-driving and I can read my papers on my way to yeah. where I'm going. That would be nice. <laughs> but also, I really like driving, especially when there's no traffic. I yeah. like, you know, just kind of gunning it and like, down the road. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I enjoy driving. But I also yeah. would enjoy, like, when I don't feel like driving, being having mm-hmm. the option to just, like, sleep yeah. <laughs> in the passenger seat. Um, so I think we're we're moving in that direction. Uh, So to kind of switch gears a little bit, I'm going to lead us through our our science fiction versus science fact segment now where I'm going to talk to you. So artificial intelligence as a topic, absolutely another like favorite one of science fiction, right? Because this is a really interesting idea of, you know, we are moving in this direction of smarter and smarter programs and computers. And what happens when we get to the point when they're indistinguishable from how a human acts or behaves and and you know at what point do have we created a new kind of life or entity that mm. has its own free will mm-hmm. and can think for itself so a lot of a lot of movies and and science fiction has has kind of looked into this topic. Uh, so Blade Runner is the example that I'm going to talk about today. It's one of my favorites. But you see this in more recently in Ex Machina. Um, you see this in Westworld. You see this in iRobot. So you see this in a lot of science fiction um, for good reason. It's a really interesting topic. So, so I'm going to talk now about... Blade Runner, which is um, a movie that came out in 1982. It's based on a short story by Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, I've seen the movie many times, and I've read the book um, as well. Uh, this is actually the second time we've talked about a Philip K. Dick short story that was adapted into a, a movie. We also talked about Total Recall in our memory episode, so go check that out if you haven't listened to that one. But um, the movie and the book are actually, uh, they kind of diverge a little bit in terms of of the general, the like specifics of the storyline, but the general plot is pretty much the same, and and it's a good one. It's really interesting. So essentially, um, the premise of this movie is that uh, you're following this character named Decker, who is basically hired to find and kill these things called replicants. And replicants in the movie are essentially very um, human, lifelike androids. So. In the um, plot of the movie, there's a company called the Tyrell Corporation, which has really gotten quite good at producing these 
androids, these replicants that are extremely lifelike and human-like to the point where their last iteration um, of, of replicants was essentially indistinguishable from a human being, not only in appearance, but also in the way that they act. And so Decker is, um, he has to go and find these repl replicants because um, they're no longer like legal, essentially. They are, um, they've kind of been escaping and, and trying to uh, escape to Earth and, and find refugee, uh, refuge on Earth uh, to escape the authorities that are after them. But Decker is sent out to kill them or kind of decommission them. And he has to basically administer these tests to them when he finds them so that he can ensure that they are actually replicants and not humans. And that line is incredibly blurry at this point because it's really hard to distinguish the two, even with these tests that they have. So in the movie, they use this test called a Voigt-Kampf test, which is a number of different metrics that they use to gauge uh, if the person that they're interviewing is a human or or this replicant. Um, and this is kind of based off of, of a Turing test or, or the Turing test. So the Turing test is one that was actually uh, developed by Alan Turing, who was is credited as the father of modern computers. Uh, and this Turing test is essentially you have um, someone who's taking the test. They are um, essentially chatting or, or having a conversation with a computer in one instance and a human in another instance. So they don't know whether they could be talking to a computer or they could be talking to a human. Um, and so they don't know in the which particular is, scenario, which is who they're talking to. And if um, more than 30% of the time uh, when they do these tests, if the computer can trick the person into thinking that they're also a human <laughs> being, essentially. So if they're able to think for the, if the computer or the program is able to think for itself and formulate responses and respond in a way that's so human-like that it fools the person on the other end to yeah. thinking that they're in conversation with a human, then that computer or that program would pass the Turing, the Turing test and officially be at the point of being able to think for itself. Um, there's a lot of programs that have been have claimed to have passed the Turing test, but um, most of the time those claims are from chat bots that mm -hmm. are not actually thinking for themselves but have just been very cleverly programmed to respond in ways that humans would respond, um, but they're not actually thinking for themselves. They just have these pre-programmed responses depending on a set number of conditions yeah. versus the, for something to really pass the Turing test, it would have to be thinking for itself and formulating these answers and, and behaving very much like a human being. So at this point, nothing has passed the Turing test conclusively. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not at that point yet where we have programs or computers that can think for themselves, but you know it's feasible that this could in happen the future, in the yeah. future. So Blade Runner, you know, kind of a little bit of a spoiler, but kind of the progression of the movie is is Decker ends up falling in love with one of these replicants that he's sent to kind of kill uh, <laughs> or, or get rid of. So there's this conflict because obviously they love each other, but he's supposed to be killing them. And like she can think for herself and she has free will and she doesn't want to die. And so at, at that point, like, how can we be justifying they're, they, they're They've moved beyond just being computers and, yeah. or androids. They're have free will and can think for themselves. And so at that point, they're essentially their own life forms that have just as much value and deserve to live just as much as human beings. So mm -hmm. that's definitely the the big theme of Blade Runner. And they continue that theme in the in the sequel, which is uh, came out a few years ago, which is Blade Runner 2049, which has Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford in it. Um, but so one of the terms that, you know, androids obviously that exist today aren't to the point where we can 
can't tell the difference. But we're getting there. We're getting closer. Like every, you know, we're we're making progress on making these androids more and more lifelike. But there's this term, you know, if you've seen Sophia the robot, she's this programmed android that kind of has a face and and skin and is programmed to talk and move her mouth and her facial muscles that aren't muscles but just parts um, <laughs> to kind of mimic human behavior, but. A lot of people are really creeped out by yeah. Sophia the Robot because there's this term that we have that's called the uncanny valley where essentially uh, if something looks human-like and is sort of acting vaguely human but there's just something that's not right, it really disturbs the viewer or the person who's kind of interacting with that that robot or that android. So we call that the uncanny valley yeah. when you're yeah. seeing something that seems to be human but is not quite right. So you're like, ooh, this yeah. this is weird. So Signal to Noise magazine published a really great article on that. It's called A Robot in Human Skin. And they talk about specifically uncanny valley. Yeah, it's it's a uh, we're we're kind of in that moment now where most androids elicit that feeling of the uncanny valley in in us, but we're they do get better and better every every year. So Kind of that's the Blade Runner, our science fiction versus science fact. Um, we do have androids, obviously, and we do have programs that are capable of learning. Yeah. Um, so this is the whole idea behind machine learning, uh, is that we have programs that can be trained on some kind of test run of data and then use how what they've learned to make decisions going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is all um, still pretty early stages compared yeah. to the the... What extremes we have in that like we ex machina <laughs> right 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 we're moving there but mm. uh this is that's that's again taking the science that we have and and kind of postulating it in in the extreme sense uh forward so i'm going to let uh Raquel now take us through our bizarre science segment yeah about how our brains <clears throat> and how our computers are quite in many ways quite similar yeah. and, and kind of mimic one another mm-hmm. so this came to me because a friend of mine sent me a meme that was really funny. I was cracking up because it was like, your brain has 5,000 gigawatts, uh, gigabytes of power, but you still can't remember a basic math problem. <laughs> it's like, gosh, that's so true. So I wanted to dive into this a little more and get some, some, some facts to bring to you guys. So the exact storage capacity of the brain is still unknown, but if a lot were a unit of measurement... That is what it would be. So there's an estimated 100 billion neurons in your brain, as we've talked about this before. Some of you guys might remember from our intelligence episode. And that's not counting glial cells. And still, if every one of those 100 billion neurons stored a memory, you wouldn't have much more memory than what's on your iPhone or maybe an SD card in your camera. So what's the difference between a glial cell and a neuron? So your neurons are the basic cells in your brain mm. while the glia support those cells. So okay. you have glia. That is a term that encompasses multiple different types mm-hmm. of cells. Like you have astrocytes that support energetically the activity of your neurons. Mm-hmm. You've got oligodendrocytes. We've heard about white matter uh, that supports fast firing of your neurons mm. and then there are microglia cells that are, act as your resident immune cells. So they're kind the of brain. helping maintain the infrastructure of yeah. the brain but the mm-hmm. neurons are the ones that are transmitting like mm-hmm. memory and, and That's that's the general consensus of the scientific community right now. Mm-hmm. But we're Those still stories learning. are still unfolding. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. We don't fully understand how the brain works, but mm-hmm. this learning. is what we've got so far. Yeah. 
Yeah, so each neuron, if it were to hold a single memory, it, it wouldn't give you that much storage space. But what does create a lot of storage space is the fact that each one of those 100 billion neurons can create 7,000, around 7,000 synapses onto wow. other neurons. Yeah, so it's a fully integrated network. And we also know now, recent research has shown that your glial cells can also synapse oh. with neurons. Oh. Yeah, so it's like oh, we have no idea <laughs> what cool. exactly your brain is. So they're super of. connected. There's yeah. lots right. of connections between mm-hmm. all these different cells that yeah. are increasing the computational and storage yeah. capacity of of the brain yeah. as a whole. Yeah, the the computational speed and efficiency of the brain is really remarkable. So as of 2016, the fastest, 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 most powerful computer can do about a billion operations per unit energy. And the human brain can do almost a million times better than that with the same amount of energy. Yeah. So our brain is about a million times more powerful than the most powerful computer. Yeah. And each one, so one of the things that allows for that to happen is each one of those neurons, they are associated with multiple different types of input. So that increases the storage capacity. So you have multiple neurons connected to each other and multiple neurons connected to different stimuli. Because mm-hmm. 100 billion neurons is only like 100 gigabytes? Uh, probably less than that. I don't know. Hmm. But we do have 1 million gigabytes that's hypothesized with this highly integrated network. Yeah, wow. so it's the network that matters. Yeah. yeah. So we have... One of the universe's most powerful computers that's in your brain, working to try to develop more powerful computers through AI. <laughs> so that's why we say that these futures that we're talking about, you know, in our science fiction or science fact segment, it's not that far off if you consider just how powerful that Sacagawea in your skull is. <laughs> so one of the things that we do have to be careful about is our brain likes to make shortcuts. So as humans are Because own, that reduces the computational power sometimes too, right? If you can it make, makes shortcuts to decision making. Yeah. You're, you know, instead of going through a long circuitous pathway, if you're like, oh, I'll just kind of cut through here and yeah. get it done quicker. Yeah. yeah. So you can think of um, your cognitive structures, the way that you categorize information and uh, events... This helps you make sense of the world around you, but it can also create biases and prejudice. So you can think of cognitive bias as being a product of your past experiences and knowledge, and the collection of these experiences allow you to make shortcuts like we were mentioning, so you can come to decisions faster, but this can also lead you to make more errors in some senses. So your past experiences affect how your brain is connected or like the actual structure yeah. of your brain. Mm-hmm. So that informs like the pathways that are available to take in your brain, depending on how these connections have been formed. Is that correct? Sort of. So your experiences can cause structural changes in your brain, but wow. that's not what I'm talking about here. Okay, okay. Here I'm talking about thought processes. Okay. So, um, there is some evidence that the type of biases that you have can be programmed into AI. So one, there are a couple of different types of biases. We have uh, stereotyping, which probably all of us are familiar with, and uh, 
confirmation bias is something that we are very familiar with in, with in the research community. Mm-hmm. So one example of this, um, the presentation of new evidence will lead you to interpret that evidence based on your prior beliefs. Mm-hmm. I have my own example that I'm going to share that I will fess up to. Uh, in our microbiome episode, we talked about a brain microbiome, which is an idea, an idea that I've been fascinated with for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the emergence of this research saying that, yeah, there seem to be microbes in healthy brains that was like, oh my gosh, it was like a little a little <laughs> sliver of validation. Like, hmm, maybe I was right. Mm-hmm. Because the general consensus is there's only microbes in unhealthy brains. So when that research came out, of course I had that feeling of, oh, wow, maybe I was right yeah, or maybe good. I was onto yeah. something. Yeah. But then I also have the checks and balances that's like, okay, I need to be critical of this evidence. Right. I need to know how they collected these brains, how they did their analyses. Yeah. So I can... And scientists can do that checks and balances balances even if you have some sort of confirmation bias. And it takes practice. That's what yeah. makes a good scientist is you have to you really consciously be like, okay, I this result is like kind of in line with my thinking, yeah. and that's cool, and that's mm-hmm. exciting to me. However, yeah. let me take a step back and like after I've read the results and like wow, that's cool. Let me if I really want to you know assure myself maybe with a little bit more confidence that maybe what their findings are are true or are are significant. Let me take a deep dive into their methods and see what their data looked like, how they collected it, Mm -hmm. how they analyzed the data. So that's a big part of being uh, a scientist is Mm -hmm. to, to take, you know, find these cool results and these cool papers. And, and, you know, if it's interesting to you, great, but also to do your due diligence and be like, let me You've got to share it. You've got to have other people look at it. Right. Yeah, and I confess I did the same thing yesterday. I shared a really cool paper with a colleague, and they were in a completely different field. And they're like, oh, that they got that result because of the way they did the experiment. There was no other way it could have gone. Mm, Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, Yeah, it's important to reach out to other people when you find stuff like that. So, like, the first thing I did was I talked to a a graduate student who's in a lab that studies the microbiome, and I was like, hey, have you heard about this research? And Mm -hmm. she's like, yeah, but I'm really skeptical about Mm -hmm. it. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's it's good to definitely... It's okay if you have that confirmation bias, but you can be aware of it. And Mm -hmm. AI cannot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when we can... While we can actively counteract it, when we feed our information into these algorithms for machine learning, they can't necessarily check themselves right. because the bias has been programmed into them. And that that's just the way it is right now. Maybe that'll change in the future, but so the the kind of example of this or essentially so so machine learning is this really interesting new field where or a pretty recent field where essentially you can create these algorithms and you can train them so you can teach or have them learn from some what's called a training set of data so you provide them with some set of data and you're like okay I want you to learn uh, from this data. So I want you can you to, teach them what a circle is or a triangle. Right. You can teach mm-hmm. them to identify patterns mm-hmm. or kind of categorize things or make decisions mm-hmm. based on the data that you're feeding them. So you give them this training set. And then once you've trained them up on a training uh, set of data, you can unleash that that algorithm or that machine learning program onto a new set of data that they've never seen before and ask them to make either decisions or categorize things or kind of um, take what they've learned and apply it to this new data. And, which is a very powerful tool. Which is great, right. So it's, it's, an, it's really people are using it in all sorts of 
creative and interesting ways. Mm-hmm. It could um, be used in the medical environment mm-hmm. to look at images from scans so you can... If you've ever had to check out and identify which one of these pictures has a bus or a stop sign in it, right. <laughs> you're giving the machine the data. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's so the, machine learning. the captchas, the recaptchas or whatever. Right. Um, but I have a, my, my friend who's in my department, she studies fish and the evolution of certain colors or patterns types on in this group of of fish and she's been creating this um, machine learning algorithm to train it on a set of pictures of fish Mm -hmm. and then be able to use that to just throw in any fish she wants and then it'll categorize it into like this one is has this kind of pattern with these stripes or this dot and this Mm. location and these colors and so that way she once she has it working then she doesn't have to manually go and collect all that trait data herself she can throw all Mm -hmm. those pictures Mm -hmm. to the the, the algorithm Mm -hmm. and it'll collect all that data for her so it can really increase efficiency um, and it's like we do exactly the same in microbiology yeah you take Mm -hmm. a microscope image of a big field of bacteria which are kind of like shaped like ovals Mm -hmm. you can teach your software to find ovals so you can count how many cells there are instead of doing it by hand. Right, which if you've ever tried to count like colonies or bacteria, that's yeah, tedious. Like a thousand ovals. And then your 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 vision starts plates with a it's very, sharpie. Yeah, yeah it's very yeah. repetitious and kind of automatic. Right, and then you kind of start zoning out because it's so you know yeah, like repetitive, yeah. and then you're like. Ugh. <laughs> oh, where did I? Where was I? That you lose your place, yeah. and you're like, no. But you can apply this same machine learning to stuff that's way more complicated, like hiring. Right. Or, yeah. So this know. is like Amazon. This is the example. So Amazon uh, did. Someone did this with the training, or sorry, they trained a machine learning algorithm on the hiring practices of Amazon. So they gave uh, the algorithm this data set that was like, this is generally the people that Amazon has hired historically. And then... So there's your data set. That's the data set yeah. that it learned from, right? That's the information that it was given. Mm-hmm. That's, you know... Now learn, find new candidates. Right, like, then they gave it new applicants, and they were like, okay, who would you hire from this applicant pool based on what you've learned about, like, generally the people that Amazon hires historically? And um, that would be the... <laughs> when that happened, that was the... They they didn't hire very they many shot females. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the the, uh, the machine learning algorithm ended up hiring a lot of men and white men, I believe. Presenting so yeah. the it's like, hmm, this is pretty informative about uh, Amazon's hiring practices <laughs> then. If this is what the Oops. machine learning algorithm tends to, to do once it's trained on this data set. So mm-hmm. um, all sorts of really broad applications that you can, can use this for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite informative, but... Uh, so these are now programs that can learn, essentially, yeah. is we're at the point mm-hmm. where we have many programs that can learn and then make decisions based on what they've learned, which yeah. is pretty impressive. Yeah. And then, so we have all of these really great benefits to AI, but there are pitfalls and being aware of those is what's really important. Mm-hmm. So there are there was 8,000 people who signed an open letter on artificial intelligence, which included the famous Cambridge scientist Stephen Hawking included researchers from Oxford University, Nick Bostrom, uh, Elon Musk. That was like a call to action that we need more research so that we can reap benefits of AI, but also avoid pitfalls like what we saw with Amazon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we want to avoid the, the is dis- bright, but it could also be a little dim. Just gotta right. We want to avoid the dystopian futures yeah, of definitely. like the robot overlords and <laughs> having our just being the the matrix where we're just energy batteries yeah, yeah. for. Yeah. If you, I mean, and if you think of the brain as a ship, and you put up sails on the ship, 
whatever sails you put up are going to catch the wind that blows. Mm. But you can open up new sails and let your boat go a different direction. So cognitive bias is having the same sails up all the time, but we have to teach the boat of our mind to yes. have new sails. Yes. And we and and the next step would be maybe teaching machine learning algorithms to to change the sales. change their sales and look at their hiring practices and, and sail into the future together Light arm in arm future. with our our computer <laughs> friends mm-hmm. so kyle tell us tell us more about right so your, i have so much beef with ai <laughs> well so yeah in our the beef cl- runs deep <laughs> We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Insufficient Facts. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about or a follow-up question to any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, insufficientfacts.com, and click on Ask the Panelists. You can submit your question, and we may discuss it on a future episode of the show. Now, please enjoy the rest of the episode. Our classic section, Kyle is going to kind of take this idea of what's the future looking like if we keep progressing and making these leaps and bounds in the processing and speed and and intelligence of these computer programs. I've got my sickle and hammer out. Yeah, he's... I'm ready to go. (laughs) Comrade Kyle is back. (laughs) Let's hear it. What do you have to say? uh, It's worth just taking a moment to reflect and review what machine learning is. Mm. Um, The way that science is done traditionally is you look at, make observations, and you write down a theory... And then you confirm that theory. Or hypothesis. And you have a hypothesis. Yeah. And you have like a, kind of a little equation or model that mm. describes the world. Mm. The way the machine learning works is you have a black box. And you just say, we don't know what's going on, but we're going to find patterns. Mm-hmm. And you can assign like a bazillion variables to something. Mm-hmm. And then find weights for those variables. And then connect those variables to other variables <laughs> in this sort of like neural network. So A goes into B, goes into C, all the way down to Z. And mm-hmm. then, then there's an output at the end. And so you don't know really what's going on, but there's something going on. (laughs) And all these different weights and connections make a decision. And so computers can actually learn from this. You give them a bunch of data and they come up with a decision. Mm -hmm. And then you get really awful things like bad hiring at Amazon. (laughs) But it all depends on the data set you give it. What's scary now is that uh, scientists are making computers that can learn and actively adapt those weights Mm -hmm. inside of the algorithm Mm -hmm. so they can learn while they're learning. Yeah, they so can learn to learn. They can adjust to changes in the data or in the environment, and and adjust how they make their decisions based on changes. Kind mm-hmm. of like we do. Yeah, right. Which is <laughs> mimicking human decision making yeah. even more closely than ever before. Right. So you can do things a lot faster and a lot more productively. So in this classic section, I'm going to take us down a cultural, politically minded direction. And I want to think about artificial intelligence as an extension of something that humans have been doing forever, making our lives easier and more productive. This time it's dark and terrifying. So behind every recommended purchase at Amazon and all the clever ways that computers can do menial tasks, there lies in wait a terrifying beast of progress. Right. So the yeah. the I like the ad thing, the example, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of why you now get those really targeted ads mm-hmm. is because they will learn from your, your purchasing search or search yeah. history online. And they're like, oh, I was wondering, and like, that's why the dress you were looking at on Forever 21 pops up on yeah. your Facebook ads. Yeah. This is why I get so many wig ads on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> they know I like purple wigs. <laughs> I get a lot of clothing ads, especially on Facebook, and I always end up clicking on them. I'm like, it got me again. <laughs> it knows me too well. <laughs> right, so the computer's learning to learn. And so the computers are getting so good that there is a chance that half of all jobs today will be replaced by a computer in a couple of decades. So will you be left behind by the computers? Will Earth resemble a hellscape dominated by the wealthy computer owners? Let's speculate. So 
Innovation begets improved lives. We depend on innovation to grow and maintain our comfortable, meaningful lives. Human progress depends on specialization and the division of labor. And what separates humans from the rest of the beast is that we use special tools and automate tasks and work in teams. Our cave-dwelling ancestors set traps to catch fish and rabbits or hunted mammoth as teams. Then we commanded agriculture to automate food collection, and our great-great-grandparents worked at conveyor belts inside of factories tightening bolts or putting parts together. And the whole time, our standards of living have been improving. At the same time, old jobs were getting replaced or eliminated mm-hmm, completely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so at some point, there was someone who wandered around the city at dusk lighting whale oil lamps. But then when electricity was invented and distributed, those jobs weren't relevant, but now there's new jobs related to electricity. Yeah. And the same with cars, which replaced horses. Suddenly we have new cars and this whole infrastructure so that you can fall asleep in a Tesla. <laughs> Today, yeah. It, and, but don't. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Right. So even though historically old jobs have been replaced by new innovations, those new innovations beget even more jobs than those that they replace. Mm-hmm. And so we can get a lot more done and more yeah. people have work to do. Mm-hmm. All right, so is this going to continue in the computer age? Some have compared the invention of the Internet to the proliferation of electricity. So presumably the same growth and improvement in our lives is coming, right? Well, the future actually looks pretty grim, especially if you're in a job that doesn't have a bunch of creativity or social creativity. And you might want to start worrying. So consider the following. At its peak in 2004, RIP, Blockbuster employed eight. 84,000 employees and made $6 billion. On the other hand, in 2016, Netflix made $9 billion, but only employed 4,500 people. It's intense. So that's about 5% of the people making 50% more of the money while the rest of us watch the next episode of Narcos (laughs) filling out another job (laughs) application at our parents' house. While our nine ninety nine is deducted monthly automatically from exactly, our, our I account. will say family videos are doing pretty well back in Elkhart, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> They're still there. Okay, carry on. So those Netflix engineers are doing what twenty could do at Blockbuster, and so and this is true across the entire economy. So mm-hmm. in the decades since the internet took off in the late nineties, workers were fifty percent more productive with the same hours of work, but their wages have remained pretty much the same. So where's the increased pay with the increased productivity? So another way to look at this is that half of college graduates take on a huge debt to get educated, mm-hmm. but then take jobs that don't require the degree anyway. So right. the jobs are not really there. No. And so with artificial intelligent computers, this is getting even worse. And like, for example, there is a company in San Francisco that made software that does all the middle management for projects. So someone can identify a project they want done. The software will find freelancers to do those jobs, mm. manage the whole process, put everything together and give it back to the people in charge of the company. Mm-hmm. And the great irony, so you're thinking like, oh, this is great. Now freelancers have jobs because mm-hmm. yeah. there's a software out there that does all the management, yeah. cut the middleman out. Right. Yeah. But what's sad is that while um, the freelancers are doing projects, the computer is learning how to do those freelancers' jobs. <laughs> and so it's getting stronger. So the great irony is that these people are digging their own graves. And yeah. this is true across so many industries. And mm. the other thing that maybe, you know, is also worth considering is like when you have there has been kind of this move to just hiring freelancers um, when needed for these projects rather than having like round the clock in employees. Right. Because it depends on the project, what you need done and, yeah. uh, you know, on the time frame. But freelancers 
don't get any benefits. Yeah. So they get paid for their work and they probably get paid well. But, you know, part of the nice thing that's being an, a salaried employee somewhere is that, especially in the United States, is you get health insurance, you get mm-hmm. dental insurance. Like all of those are benefits that they have to give full time salaried mm-hmm. employees. If you're a freelance worker, you are probably making good money, but then you are not considered a full-time salaried employee. So you, the company does not have to give you any of those benefits. Meanwhile, AI is learning how to do your job, so eventually you won't even be able to freelance <laughs> right. anymore. These people are coding themselves right. out of even freelance jobs. Right, and everything you do seems to be feeding into the problem. So companies like Amazon and Facebook and Instagram have an algorithmic target on your back at all times, and they grow stronger and smarter <laughs> with all the data that you generate. <laughs> so is this really making our lives better? Like, more people are making more money off of, like, fewer people who are employed. So what's happening to the rest of us? Yeah. Yeah. Like, are we really willing to give up all this wealth just to slide through another page on Instagram? Mm. And so the point I want to make here is that the computers, while they're helping our lives, they're, in the long run, I think it's really hurting us. And so there's something really systemic about the way that the world works, this way that this whole, like, kind of anarcho-capitalist system yeah. is feeding into this problem. Mm-hmm. There's fewer people who are making all the money. You just I, need to have securities in place. Should I be investing in servers? <laughs> That's my question. Is that a, one way to guarantee my income is if I just invest in a bunch of like server rooms that because people will they'll need the servers, right? That's like, a, you know, that's that's a that, that'll be a, a resource that's yeah. valuable. Yeah. So here I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to do a good thing and a bad thing. So if you want to keep your job, make sure you're very creative. Because there's a so about 50% of people employed today have a 70% chance of being replaced in 20 years or so, and they're working sort of menial tasks, like they're working at uh, you're doing retail, like you used to work retail. You mm-hmm. understand? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're doing something like artsy or scientific, you're gonna have your job. But even then, almost every single task that you look at in the world can be decomposed into smaller, simpler ones. So even mm-hmm. like flying a plane looks like a lot of different things going on. You can decompose everything and a computer can learn every single one of those components. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what if eventually my job is like, you know, I can tell the computer, this is the data I want to collect. Let me like give you the specimens, collect the data for me and then analyze it. This is what I want to look at at the end and just yeah. have the whole process automated. So yeah. I, I'm minimally involved. Or Even in science. Simulations yeah. Yeah. versus yeah. actual experiments. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, this is becoming a huge problem in science. And I think for a slightly different reason than what you're talking about. Yeah. For example, there was a really good editorial written by the editor of Wired magazine, I think in 2000 or 2001. And he called the article's called The End of Theory. And he said, well, if we have machines that can just learn everything and find correlations between data, Mm -hmm. what's the point of writing down theories? Mm -hmm. But machine learning and coming up with weights and all this neural network stuff is not an understanding of the world. No. It's a way to leverage and engineer the world, but Mm -hmm. it's not an understanding. So theory represents these like little morsels of truth that Mm -hmm. scientists work for. I mean, I wouldn't even call them little. Like theories are the the big overarching umbrella under which we understand and kind of the space in which we can Mm -hmm. work. I think there was a Greek god or Hercules or something that said, just give me a fulcrum and I'll turn the earth. (laughs) So these theories are the fulcrums by which we turn the earth. Yeah, Yeah, and there has been a move away from, like theorizing is not profitable as a science. If you're just uh, theorizing uh, without data to back it up, it's it's very rare that you would get any publication out of that or any kind of attention for just a theory without something 
to back it up yeah. and, and, you know. You need the data. Yeah. So there's definitely been this big data push, like big data is better and more data and let's get those really significant values. And for- that's why there's a push for the, these machine learning algorithms because we're producing more data than we know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Or that yeah. we can feasibly yeah. look at. manpower yeah. to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm not sure what the answer is. Maybe universal basic income or like a complete (laughs) communist uprising, Uprising. which I'm all for. (laughs) Good luck. We need some way to allow for everyone to be able to have adequate housing, adequate nutrition. I don't mind, you know, quality of life is important. Reading a book all day. Every every human being machines do my job. (laughs) I love science, guys. I do. But uh, I mean, yeah, every human being deserves to have yeah. a decent quality of life. And that's right? already something that we need to be working on. Well, it's anyway. something that society has consistently yes, struggled with. Yes. There's been no period, you know, in human's history where, like, everyone's had the same quality of life. Mm-hmm. But it's something that we should still, it's still a worthwhile effort to try and improve yeah. the quality of life. So. And I, I got a lot of inspiration for this segment from a really great YouTube channel called Korkazat, in a nutshell. And yes. Korkazat is K U R. Z G E S A G T Kurkazat. I love that channel. So go in a this nutshell automation. They have a really good series. It's all animated. It's yeah. very, very, very well researched. Yes. Nice. And they have a whole series on like kind of the future. Yes. Oh. Yeah. They they have super informative, super entertaining, well done, like well produced so, videos. So Kurkazat yeah. in, in a nutshell automation. Yeah. So that that kind of wraps up our our. Artificial intelligence, our AI episode. Hopefully, this was interesting and informative, and maybe exciting, maybe terrifying to you. Um, I would say start, you know, investing in servers um, to guarantee that's going to become. I'm the investing new... in surfers. <laughs> that's yourself. That's you investing in yourself, Kyle. That's right. <laughs> um, so. Hopefully you, you kind of had a, an informative episode today. We had a fun time talking about this yeah. topic. Um, and it, it's really interesting and not something, you know, e- even as a biologist who studies, you know, dog anatomy, I have, you know, a coworker in my department who's using machine learning algorithms to look at fish pictures, which mm-hmm. is so it, it's, it's infiltrating all our fields. And I have another lab mate who's doing uh, a lot of his data is generated from computer simulations of systems with different parameters. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, Carl, is, you brought up simulations yeah. earlier. Yeah. So this is absolutely you know, um, showing up in a lot of different avenues and areas of life. So it's kind of important for us to think about, you know, even though I'm not coding androids or computers, it's important for me to kind of consider where the future of, of our technology is going and yeah. how that might impact my, Will my own Will you be replaced? I hope not. I'd like to have a yeah. job security for most of my life. But I would we'll, like to live a fulfilling life. Yeah. Who will make the podcasts? The computers. Who will listen to the podcast? The computers. Oh, my God. (laughs) They need downtime, too. So to end our our podcast, I think we'll kind of shift into our Lifting the Veil segment where we'll tell you kind of what we're looking forward to uh, in our coming week or so. So what am I looking forward to? Well... I'm looking forward to my conference that I have coming up, but I'm also looking at it with some amount of trepidation because Mm. I still have a lot of work to do before I'm at all ready to (laughs) present my data at that conference. So it's a it's a healthy, healthy fear of it just because that will kick my button to gear to get some stuff done. And uh, I'm hoping to have some of most of that data ready to present to my lab next week so that they can give me some feedback so I can finalize it and then Mm. kind of have the poster printed and everything um, so I don't have to stress out too much. Um, So 
that's kind of my, my next week is shifting into more of like kick it into high gear and get yeah. my data analyzed and finally like start piecing it together and putting some some uh, images together to kind of show what my results are. Yeah. What about cool. you, Raquel? I'm going to talk today about work-life balance because this oh, is very important. It's <laughs> such an important struggle, but such a difficult yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So for me, science is my life, but also I really just love Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. And that keeps me sane. I don't do any other type of physical activity like Christian. She'll lift weights, which is really cool. No, but it's the same for me. me. No, but like I so so let me back up. Like I we talk about probably too frequently how often I go to the gym (laughs) just because I go to the gym right before we record. Yeah. Um, uh, Before going to grad school, I didn't go to the gym at all. Yeah. Like I was not that type of person. Um, I don't like waking up early in the morning to work out. The only reason I do is because I have like a gym buddy who I go with. Um, I did like dance in high school and partly through college and I did other like like sports or activities, but yeah. like never I never saw the appeal of the gym. <laughs> but to me, the thing that motivated me is a as a grad student, I have free access or I, I can get access to the several gyms on campus. Yeah. So that's a really nice resource resource that's convenient for me. And then I have older parents and. I've seen a lot of studies and just personally in my own life, like how important it is to just have have it be in some part of your daily or weekly routine to have physical exercise be a part of that. And because that just is a good habit to maintain throughout your lifetime of like find some way that you enjoy getting some kind of physical exercise or kind of just working your body and letting your brain rest yeah. For a second. I think that's super, super important for the the balance of, of you know, you yeah. <laughs> you're mental health is also dependent on your physical health and mm-hmm. you get these good endorphins when you work and out. And I'm just more motivated to do well in my science. Yeah. And I'm more creative. Right. And when I'm training regularly, like I can clearly see the difference when I've, I'm so jam-packed with yeah. stuff I have to do that I can't train yeah. versus when I'm able to make the time to train. It, it's a completely different yeah. person. Yeah. I'm a better human being when I've trained and yeah. I've been around my teammates and it, it's just a really, like with jujitsu. The community there means a lot, mm-hmm. and I appreciate y'all. You keep me going. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Kyle? I've been injured, so this is a great topic. Uh, I either strained or herniated a disc in my back. It's been mm. tough to walk. Ouch. I hope you didn't herniate a disc. Yeah, that's... that's a major. Yeah. Um, so I haven't been able to surf in like four weeks or something. Oh, Aww. no. And I don't know. Oh. So now I'm trying to champion the this idea of health. And wellness. <laughs> it's only after you get injured you're like, hmm, this is probably right? important. Well, oh I thought I was gosh. being healthy, but I don't know. I don't know what happened. It's really easy to to just tweak something, or mm-hmm. you know, it, it happens to all of there us. There was like an aggressive twist and bend, and I popped something <laughs> in my back. I'm, oh. I'm starting to suspect it's a strain. I'm recovering slowly, but like, um, but I have, I have a standing desk now. I go nice. to a physical therapist. That's yeah, good. that's important. That, all that stuff is important. Like, yeah, the. The the exercise that I do at the gym does really help. It has I've seen a big improvement in not only like my because I do like deadlifts for part mm-hmm. of my exercise and, and running or whatever. So I've seen a lot of improvement in not only my leg strength, but also just my like back strength, which has been really nice because um, that is it's really easy to like injure yourself if you try and you, you don't you don't gradually back, yeah. build up your strength. So it's just yeah. a slow and steady wins the race kind of thing. Um and I definitely have more energy, so like even when I'm on less amount of sleep than I should be, like mm-hmm. I still have energy to get through the day. For yeah. usually, sometimes I'm just like I, I need a nap, yeah. help me, <laughs> and caffeine. But but it's an important balance. That balance is like I do not neglect your physical health. Yeah. 
and and drive your yourself, mental health. Yeah, and your mental health by working yourself to the bone. It, it it as I always say, not only with grad school, but just in life, mm-hmm. it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like yeah. you want to be able to persist and do this for a long time. Uh, and have, we're at the beginning, but yeah. hopefully we'll keep this this frame of mind. Yeah, and you want through. to maintain that desire, and you don't want it to become a chore or painful or tedious. So yeah. balance is an important part of that, and and mental health too. Like I, a lot of you know, this isn't discussed as much, but it's becoming more and more prevalent. Is as you know, a lot of folks do suffer from depression in grad school and do suffer from periods where you're just doubting yourself at and, a higher rate than the general population, at a much higher rate than the general public, and and you know, a lot of people do go see their therapists or get counseling either regularly or occasionally in grad school. And that's good. They Mm -hmm. should be doing that. Like if you need that, then please look for those resources and utilize them because that's a really important part that you absolutely should not neglect. And it's normal to have these periods of depression or self-doubt and and having a support system to work through those periods is, is important. I totally took us off the base of the actual topic of this episode. We ended with mental health, but it's important, right? You know, when you're thinking about the potential future of robot overlords, like, don't stress out too much. <laughs> and also, if you're thinking about graduate school, keep that in mind. Yeah. You want to maintain your mental health yeah. and work-life balance is really important mm-hmm. for long-term success. Yeah. Well, Kyle, I hope your back feels better. We're working on it. It's a slow, mm-hmm. slow improvement, hopefully. Yeah. Baby steps. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today. Um, We were super happy to have you. We had a fun time talking about this topic. Um, Hopefully it kind of ignited your curiosity, so you'll go do some research of your own. Um, And hopefully we will have you with us next week. So this was Insufficient Facts. You were with Christiane. Raquel. And Kyle. Thank you. Hi, I'm Christiane, and thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. As a fact finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a finder's exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes our official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. This episode was brought to you by Super Ordinary. To listen to their show, visit their website at superordinarypod.com. And now, please enjoy a sneak peek of the show. If you're listening to this, you're one of many lucky reporters about to get the scoop of the century. You're welcome. Look, you all know who I am. This is your resident supervillain coming at you from an undisclosed location. And I think it's time everyone got a chance to hear my side of the story, sans news propaganda, don't you? I was 16 when I had the first panic attack that I can remember. You definitely don't see them coming, and you in no way, shape, or form asked for it. It closes up your chest, convinces you there's not an ounce of oxygen in the room. Your vision tunnels in. Everything sounds far away. Well, um, it's terrifying. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. You okay? okay? It's okay. I'm right here. Just breathe. Just breathe. You want me to turn this off? 
told you it was definitely me that caused it, not some freak accident. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that now. And? And that was so cool! I can't believe you have superpowers! Super Ordinary is coming September 2018. Until then, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SuperOrdPod.